0: Hey guys welcome to the show i hope you had a nice fourth of july mine was very relaxing um but today i have a very special guest but before i get to that remember that we are on patreon and you can subscribe as little as five dollars a month and to support the show and it helps out a lot so there's a link below but today i have a guest professor nancy piercy She's written many books. She's the author of Love Thy Body, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. This is an amazing book. I highly recommend it. I just finished reading it a few days ago. She's also the author of Saving Leonardo. You may have heard of this book. It came out in 2010. And it's a great book as well. It's it's the subtitle is A Call to Resist the Secular Assault on Mind, Morals, and Meaning. She's also written several other books, including The Soul of Science, Finding Truth, and Total Truth. She is professor and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. She has been quoted in the New Yorker and Newsweek Magazine, highlighted as one of the top women apologists by christianity today and hailed in the economist as quote america's preeminent evangelical protestant female intellectual welcome nancy piercy
1: thank you so much beckett it's good to be here
0: so glad to have you on the show love thy body i just read this i guess last week and or a couple weeks ago and so amazing i highly recommend it and again, the subtitle is answering hard questions about life and sexuality. And so um, I want to get into this book. I have, a lot of hi- I have a lot of highlighting in the book. We won't go through all of it, but I just wanted to ask some, some of the points that stuck out to me. So first of all, you start in, in chapter one, You you set up the whole book with this kind of two story division metaphor. Can you explain this dualism, explain what that you mean by this.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it's a good place to start. Um, I became a Christian at Brie through the uh, ministry of Francis Schaeffer. And one of Francis Schaeffer's main themes in his apologetics was that the concept of truth has been divided. And that this is the main barrier that Christians face in talking to secular people today, or even talking to their own kids, right? Is that the concept of truth has been divided. And so when you say to somebody, Christianity is true, they no longer know what you mean. And right. here's how he expressed it. Um, later, later, I discovered that, that there is a way that the secular world talks about this division of truth. It's called the fact-value split, fact slash value split and so that might be an easy way to label it Schaeffer didn't use that label but um, I did in my book my my book total truth is where I kind of uh, dealt with this concept of the divided concept of truth and what it means is this most civilizations have thought that there is a natural order and there's a moral spiritual order but that the two are united that there's a single cosmos and therefore there's a single truth that explains all of reality And we had that here in in the West until the rise of the scientific revolution. With the rise of modern science, many people began to say, no, 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 the only reliable form of truth is what we know by science, you know, empirically verifiable facts. And what do you do then with things that cannot be directly verified by science, like moral and spiritual truths? Well, they're not considered truths anymore they have they've been put into a separate category called values which means your personal preference your personal experience what what gives you a sense of meaning but is considered relativistic and subjective and so the uh, philosophers often use the metaphor of two stories in a building you know the way the lower story is objective facts knowable knowable by science and the upper story is where we toss anything that you know cannot be tested in a test put in a test tube or studied under a microscope so mor- morality spirituality purpose meaning beauty all of these things that are more intangible are put up in the upper story where they're considered not really truths anymore and so that is what secular people call the fact value split and schaefer said when we tell people christianity is true what happens is that they don't know it but they have the fact value split you know, in, in their mind and so they unreflectively you know unthinkingly they just throw christianity in the upper story where they think we're not talking about objective truth they think we're talking about what gives me personal meaning what makes me feel good what what gets me through the night and they they're likely to say well i'm happy for you yeah i'm, ha- I'm glad that works for you <laughs> but they don't even hear you making an objective truth claim and so schaefer used to say that was the main barrier to communicating, not, like I said, not just with the secular world, but our own kids are, are being trained in the fact-value split. And so because that was a big part of my becoming a Christian is understanding the split view of truth. When I started looking around at other subjects, I, I discovered, well, wow, if your view of truth is split, it affects everything else. And so when I picked up the moral issues in my book, Love Thy Body, like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on, um, I discovered there too, that, that there was a split understanding, in this case of the human, of the human being, you know, because right. moral issues affect how we see the human being. And there was a split there as well. And so that was kind of what got me started writing *Lovely Body, is I wanted to try to explain how that split affects all of our thinking about the moral issues.
0: Yeah, and explain that split uh, in terms of abortion. For example, you talk about Roe v. Wade. I mean, Roe v. Wade, there, there's this concept of human versus person. So talk about personhood and how how the idea of personhood has a low view of the human body.
1: Yes, um, it, it's actually an abortion where the split view is first applied. Um, I think the first person was uh, the secular bioethicist bioeth- Peter Singer. You know, uh-huh. secular bioethicists began to talk about the body versus the person, and I quickly realized it was the same split because the body is what we know by science. You know, genetic people like Peter Singer, bioethicists were saying, "Okay, the fetus is human from conception. Right. The evidence from genetics and DNA is just too strong to deny it." You know, the the fetus is biologically, physiologically, anatomically, chromosomally human. Right. Uh, Just read any embryology textbook. So how did they get around that then? Because they did still want to support abortion. So secular bioethicists said, well, the fetus may be human, but it's not a person until sometime later, when it, it usually defined in terms of certain mental abilities, certain level of cognitive functioning, self-awareness, and so on. Well, if you can be human at one point, but not a person until sometime later, then clearly these are two different things. And so I recognized that, and actually it was, it was uh, Catholic thinkers who first recognized this, people like John Paul II were the first to recognize that secular bioethicists had shifted their argument. They no longer said the fetus is not human. They said, oh, sure, the fetus is human, but it's not a person. And that was that two-story, you know, like I said, the the metaphor of two stories in a building, that was that two-story dichotomy applied to the human person. The body is what we know by science, that's facts, but in the value sphere, you know, how do we value human life? what moral status do we give it? Do, does it warrant legal protection? That was all upper story. And so in a sense, it becomes completely arbitrary and subjective because if personhood is not connected to, be, to being biologically human, then what is it based on? It turns out it is completely subjective. Every bioethicist draws the line at a different place. There was no agreement among secular bioethicists when personhood starts. And so this was something that Christians needed to fig- get on board with because they were still arguing. And I still, I still hear this from readers or if I speak you know, at a conference, or something, I still have people coming up to me and say, oh, I realize I'm still arguing you know, in a way that secular people are no longer, you know, I'm, not, I'm answering questions they're no longer answering. I'm still arguing that the fetus is human, whereas the cutting edge today is, okay, it's human, but it's not a person. And that was, and Roe v. Wade actually did instantiate that in law. And Roe v. Wade did, uh, Justice Blackman did argue that the fetus is human, but not a person. So when we overturn Roe v. Wade, we now have the opportunity to to revisit that argument. And Christians need to make sure they are reading the secular bioethicists and uh, they're up on the latest version of their argument.
0: Yeah, and and of course, this this split between be the body and personhood or human and being a human being a person has massive implications on everything you know including assisted suicide transgenderism homosexual homosexuality but which we're going to get into so there's this it 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 permeates everything this idea this secular idea
1: yeah that was one of the exciting things about my book love their body is you know we tend to try to master arguments for each of these issues separately in fact Schaefer used to say that he said we try to deal with these issues in bits and pieces <laughs> with his way of putting it and what we need to understand is there's a common underlying worldview under all of these issues and if you master that worldview it will be so much easier for yeah. you to argue against the secular worldview there's a common underlying worldview and that's what i tried to get across in love thy body I tried to train christians and, and any and others on you know, what is the underlying worldview that underlies all of these moral issues?
0: Yeah, and you talk about Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution, and how that really—I mean—that had a huge impact on how we view the body, how we view and his <clears throat> and how his logic undergore undergirds uh, abortion. So, talk about a little bit about Darwin and how pernicious his his ideas are, and have—I mean—influenced the world really and especially the west
1: yeah actually i I usually talk about that and um especially in the context of homosexuality because i have a wonderful quote from camille paglia who i'm sure you know yeah camille paglia has a wonderful quote
0: who is a feminist she's a she's not a believer she's a feminist yes
1: Oh, and you know, yeah, she's a feminist. She's a lesbian. You know, yeah. She's a well-known public intellectual. But do you know she's recently come out as trans? You, did you realize that?
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I double-checked.
0: <laughs> I, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that.
1: She's now saying she's trans. Um, wow. <laughs> but the interesting thing about her, and the reason that a lot of Christians read her stuff, is, is she is a bit of an iconoclastic feminist. In other words, she she denies that sex is just a social construction. She says, no, 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 nature made us male and female. Uh, And actually, I recently found a quote from her where she said, let's see if I can remember her exact words. She says, uh, humans are designed, designed for sexual reproduction. (laughs) She uses the word designed. Um, But then you say to her, well, in that case, how do you justify being lesbian or now trans, you know, if, if nature made us male and female? And her answer is this, she says this in an essay. She says, why not defy nature? After all, again, her direct direct quote, "Um, fate, not God has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. (laughs) The the logic there is, if bodies are products of blind material forces, as Darwin said, then they convey no moral message they give us no clue to our identity we are not morally obligated to they have no intrinsic purpose right morally obligated there's no tell
0: us right
1: exactly no tell us no teleology and therefore we may do with them as we see fit and that is perfectly logical i love the fact that she really unpacks the logic of the Darwinian view and our response, therefore, has to also go back to nature. I mean, ethics are always derived from nature because the human body is part of nature. And so, as Christians, we need to go back all the way to
0: Aristotle or <laughs> Genesis. Not, be- but before that, to Genesis one and two. But, but Aristotle, Aristotle was
1: teleological as well. As well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but yeah, Genesis. Well, or the, the science itself. I mean, today it's pretty obvious from science itself that. Uh, as Aristotle said, eyes are made for seeing, ears are made for hearing, uh, wings are made for flying, fin- fins are made for swimming. And today we know even better, but there's a, there's a geneticist who, who jokingly says we should give Aristotle a Nobel prize because he basically discovered genetics. He discovered that there's an inbuilt plan or a blueprint that governs the development of the entire organism. So science itself shows that nature has a plan an order, a blueprint, a purpose.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And what Christians are saying is that when we live in harmony with that purpose, we will be happier and healthier.
0: And then you, and in in chapter two of Love Thy Body, you get into Descartes, Rene Descartes, the 17th century French philosopher. um, And you, you talk about, talk about Descartes and his influence on on our thinking in the West and his influence about uh, regarding dualism, his idea of the ghost and the machine that were just machines, but talk about that. And also, if you if people don't know who Descartes is, he's famous for saying, I think therefore I am. And I like how you broke you break that down in your book. Um, just cogito cogito or is it cogito or cogito I never know what it is, ergo sum how what the implications of I think therefore I am are
1: yeah um i i I have sometimes been asked to do lectures just on transgenderism alone and so you know which is only one chapter of the book but so what i do is i show how the divided concept of the person developed over time and from plato who said the body is the prison of the soul Mm -hmm. you know you mentioned a a moment ago that all of these issues depend on a low view of the body. Um, well, that's a low view of the body, Plato said, and Gnosticism too, you know, which the uh, early church fathers were up against, they said that the 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 material realm is a realm of death, decay, and destruction, and therefore it's bad, and the goal of salvation is to escape from the body. Uh, but the modern form of dualism really starts with Descartes. So Descartes was a French philosopher who who explicitly said, you know, the body is part of nature, and therefore it's part of the newtonian world machine it's completely mechanistic um and then the soul is some, some mysteriously connected to this machine <laughs> um but it's the soul that actually determines who we are right uh, as you said "Cogito ergo sum means i think therefore i am therefore you know the, our entire identity is tied up with our thinking with our mind and kant is really the next one Kant goes even further, Kant says, uh, Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher. And by that time, the, the Descartes' dualism was pretty well established. But he, And he took it a step farther and he said, well, the order that we think we find in nature is not really there. It's just a part of the human mind. And mm-hmm. so even the order in nature is just a social construction. And which was what postmodernism, mean, he was really the founder of postmodernism right postmodernism today says you know even science is just a human construction it's not objective truth and so that leads us therefore to judith butler who is considered the founder of queer theory right and she essentially says uh you know we, we think gender is a social construction but no even sex is a social construction uh, because yes and when pressed by the way this was it was fun it was kind of fun to watch this dialogue going on because feminists protested against judith butler and they said well if if sex is just a social construction what do we do about women's rights (laughs) if we can't say that we're biologically female what happens to rights that are based on the fact that we are biologically female and so uh, pressed on the issue judith butler finally said yeah 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 (laughs) there is material reality but the minute we start talking about material reality, we're using language, and language is a social construction. So we really do have no access to the material reality. And uh, you might enjoy this, Beckett. I actually read an article—excuse uh, me, a whole book—a whole book by one of Judith Butler's um, students. Her name is Gail Solomon. She is a, teaches at Princeton University. And you know what the um, intellectuals say is what filters down to the popular level. Yep. So now, of course I had to, her book was a defense of transgenderism. Uh, so of course I read it. And here's what she said. Your gender has nothing to do with your physical anatomy. And let me see if I can give you the exact quote. Um, the materi- uh, uh, Oh, here's how she put it. The real body, real in quotes, meaning the physical body, the real body tells us nothing. Uh, it has no meaning at all. That was the exact words. The physical body has no meaning at all. So this is what is being taught all the way down to kindergartners today. You know, what Judith Butler taught radical students a couple decades yeah. ago, is now being taught to kindergartners that your body is totally meaningless. I read a curriculum not long ago that instructs teachers in a first grade lesson. This is the first grade lesson. And teach, it was in the Washington Post. So, of course, you know, this is widespread. Um, teachers in first grade are instructed to tell people just because you have what some people might call boy parts. Notice what some people might call not even acknowledging that maybe yeah. it really is. <laughs> Just because you have what some people might call boy parts doesn't mean you're g- you're a boy doesn't mean and just because you have what some people call girl parts does not mean you're a girl you know what what really matters is your feelings so the from Descartes you know, which you brought you know we, we started with to Judith Butler to today's kindergarten class first graders uh, there was an article in the newspaper not long ago where a um, parents were taking the school to court because a child, uh, I think this was the first grader, uh, the child had come home saying, you know, my, my teacher's saying, just because you have girl parts doesn't mean you're a girl, just because you have boy parts doesn't mean you're, you're a girl. Boy, what am I getting confused? Just because you have boy parts doesn't mean you're a boy. At any rate, the child had come home um, saying, mommy, what am I? Please take me to a doctor so we can find out what I am. And uh, they were taking wow. the, it was in the news because the, the family was taking the school district court for emotional distress. But anyway, that's where we come from. You know, I, I'm always, you know, I, I love philosophy. So I'm always telling people, look, you have to understand the intellectual history. You know, what are the experts saying? What are the philosophers saying? If you wanna understand what's being taught to your kindergarten, kindergartners, and first graders today,
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, it's basically the body is meaningless at this point in in philosophy. It's, it's all about just whatever, you know, whatever you're feeling, filtering all your experience and things through your feelings and how you, you feel about yourself. It's not, there's nothing scientific about it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. And that's what's interesting is the reversal because historically Christians have been thought to be otherworldly right that we don't care about this world we care only about the spiritual realm uh one of my students put it this way she said growing up in the church i was always taught spirit good body bad yeah when i speak to christian audiences i always get a lot of heads nodding. You know, sounds like <laughs> what i grew up with um, and, and what's fascinating today is it's it's turned uh, 180 degrees today it's christian saying hey was we're supposed to respect our biology. We're supposed to have uh, we're supposed to honor our biology, our, our bodies. Um let me give you a, a couple of quotes. These are my favorite quotes from the book. Um the two of the quotes are in the in the chapter on homosexuality. So you may remember these. Um uh so one of them was by uh, it's the opening anecdote to the chapter on homosexuality. It's Sean Doherty. Sean Doherty. Yes. Yeah, so he was, you probably know him, in fact. Um, I
0: know, I don't know him, but yeah, I, I remember the, the quote.
1: Yeah, you should get in touch with him. <laughs> uh, because, you know, he, he, he grew up, he, uh, he's very careful to say he grew up exclusively homosexual, right? Because uh, today he's married and has three kids. And what people will often say was, well, you weren't really homosexual then, you were probably bi all along. And so he's very careful to say, no, no, I was exclusively homosexual so attracted to other men. Um, and what's interesting about his story is he grew up in a gay affirming family and attended a gay affirming church. So he didn't think there was anything morally wrong with homosexuality. And you ask, well, why did he change then? He said, well, I came to understand, You know, I didn't try to change my feelings directly, which rarely works. He said, but I came to understand that um, I wanted to respect what I already had rather than changing my feelings. I realized what I already had was a male body. Yeah. And I wanted to respect it as a, his is the way, the way he phrased it, as a good gift from God. And he said, uh, eventually my feelings started to follow suit. And so, there, once again, we come back to the question you raised earlier about Darwin. The core of this debate is are, do we live in a, world created by meaningless purposeless mindless forces or do we live in a world that's created by a loving creator which is therefore intrinsically good and we want to honor our bodies as a good gift from god
0: yeah i love that quote by him by the way it, re- it really had a powerful impact on me because when he said that yeah i was created and i i've recently um kind of gone through this myself about i think about a month ago i I had this sort of epiphany and I talked about it on the show recently, but like, I'm a man, God created me male. Like, so, and I, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that, that does the, you know, that does follow suit. The, the rest of it follows suit. Um, but yeah, I've, I've finally come to this realization. Like I, I'm a man, like all that stuff I was doing in my past, that was all just, Distorted. It was such dis- an, a distortion of sexuality, and that—that's not who I was, really, because I'm a man, and God created me a man. So, I love that quote by him. Um, but back to just quickly back to abortion. You talk about how abortion demeans women. Can you talk about that for a sec? Uh,
1: yeah. So this was obvious to me even as a non-Christian. You know, you know, I—I I didn't become a Christian until college, and. Um, even as a non christian well it's kind of hippie so i come kind of into natural things anyway um but the idea of interfering a natural with a natural process you know if pregnancy is a natural process and interfering with that natural process with toxic chemicals and and um lethal um i i, I want to say weapons well equipment whatever yeah interfering with with lethal equipment, killing a baby in the womb. I mean, even as a non-Christian, that struck me as incredibly unnatural.
0: And violent, too, yeah.
1: And violent. And so, you know, I I, I didn't really, um, I I had a very feminist background. Um, I had, um, without going into detail, I had a very abusive childhood. And my father was very abusive. And. That's the story I'm going to tell in my next book, but it set me up to be a really raving feminist, right? That um, I read all the classic feminist literature and thought each one was better than the one before.
0: Betty Friedan and uh, yeah. Simone de Beauvoir, all the all of them, glorious Steinem.
1: Yes, and Kate, Kate Millett, yes.
0: Yeah, Kate Millett.
1: <laughs> yes, Susan Brownmiller. I mean, I loved them all. I just loved them. Um, and but but when it came to abortion i thought well wait a minute that's violating a woman's a woman's natural biological processes in fact i wasn't even into um chemical birth control you realize that hormonal birth control is kind of considered a uh, carcinogen (laughs) it's cancer so even after i got married i i i We didn't, we use natural birth control. Um, You know, I didn't want to use chemicals in my body. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, so to tell the truth, the idea that you interfere with a woman's natural processes is highly disrespectful to who women are as biological beings. What is it that women have that's distinctive? What is their distinctive contribution? Well, they give, they bear and give new life. And, and so it turns out historically you can see this too. Uh, historically, any culture that accepts abortion and infanticide, because you know, infanticide you know was accepted all the way back to the ancient Romans and Greeks. Yeah. In fact, um, you know some of our heroes of the ancient world like Cicero and Aristotle and Plato all recommended infanticide as official state policy. You know, if a child is born and it's not completely healthy, you know they said that you have an obligation to kill it or to expose it, you know, put it out yeah. in nature to be uh, exposed to the elements uh, and the wild animals. So it was Christianity that changed the West that said, no, you know, ba- babies are made in God's image and are to be cared for and nurtured and honored, you know, as, as people, persons made in God's image. But what many people don't realize is that it also is the status of women, because no. a high view of Babies, you will have a high view of women who give us babies and who spend a great deal of their lives nurturing, bearing, nurturing, and raising children, especially in pre modern times. Pre modern times, which is most of human history, women spent a pretty large majority of their adult life bearing, nursing, and caring for children in a sling around and a sling on their back, <laughs> you know, usually all three at once. Yeah. So when Jesus, so when Jesus rebuked the disciples, remember that when the mothers brought their children to Jesus to be blessed, we understand now why the disciples said, get those kids out of here, you know, cause that was their culture. The yeah. culture was children, the Romans didn't consider children even full persons. And so you understand what they said, go away. Well, when Jesus said, bring the children to me, it wasn't just expressing a high view of children. It was was expressing respect for mothers, because that is a great part of women's contribution to the human race.
0: Yeah, I love that. And speaking of feminism, you have a section called The Real War Against Women. And a lot of my old friends uh, in in Hollywood, not, not a lot, several of them have reached out to me and they are in their 50s now, women, and they were ardent feminists, and they're now single, unmarried, uh, childless, um, and they have major regrets. And you talk about this in the book, and you you talk about the idea that a woman must establish her career before marriage and motherhood, and how this is not really pro-woman
1: yeah i i'll give credit where credit's due. that was um partly i partly attribute that to an article by uh, jennifer roback morris so she's a former feminist an economist uh who's writing now uh you know against feminism but um so she was she writes from some the position of somebody who was there you know who was putting her career off to have kids to make it um and she was making it she was she was pretty high up in the world of economics you know um, she was being groomed, you know, for natural na- national leadership, um, and and she s- suffered incredible repercussions when she said, "Well, I think I want to step down and have kids." And like, what? <laughs> what? We've been grooming you for this leadership position, you know, and you're going to give it all up to have children? Well, and then she found out she couldn't have children; she was infertile by that time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so she's very sensitized to. The pressure on young women to get ahead in your career—and of course, I felt this too—with um, uh, I, I, my feminist background, I felt very apologetic about getting married, and I felt even worse when I was pregnant. Oh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, because you can't hide pregnancy. Yeah. You can't hide it. And I felt like, oh, man, it, it, it,
0: it's it's frowned upon in our culture now to be <laughs> pregnant. It's just fr- it's like, oh, you're ooh, I don't, you know, yeah,
1: that's exactly how I felt. I felt I, I've given up. the I've given up the war, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And it's very obvious. I've given up the you know, I've given into femininity. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it was while I was pregnant that I finally started reading some Books that change, I, you know what? You know what? I was about halfway through my pregnancy when I said, This isn't fair to my child. You know, the, the child that's going to be born here should not be born to such an ambivalent mother, <laughs> mm. that's not fair to a, the child. Uh, and so I began to read some books on, on that were more, you know, pro women. You know, books by the La Leche League, which is the organization that helps women breastfeed, they have books you know that present motherhood in a very positive way. Um, that present motherhood as a relationship you know a lot of people treat parenthood mostly as tasks you know here's a list of tasks that you're going to have to do you know changing diapers and feeding and getting up in the middle of the night you know it it sounds like a lot of work and i read books that treated it more as a relationship with a little person and i thought okay okay i can get into that (laughs) yeah that I can get into like <laughs> and, and so i really worked hard at overcoming my feminist bias and and trying to become a more um a, a more positive mother and i have to tell you though once uh, childbirth happens um there's a bunch of hormonal changes as you as you probably know and, um all kinds of hormonal Oxy,
0: oxytocin oxytocin
1: <laughs> um that you you get flooded with these wonderful bonding emotions bonding hormones that give you bonding emotions and so i i had no problem once my child was born i just to to make sure the records um clear on this i was very I was a very engaged mother in fact i homeschooled my kids i was to have more time with them i loved being a mother my i say past tense because I, my my youngest son just moved out but so I love being a mother. I love homeschooling. I love being very engaged with my parents. My my, my I love being a parent involved with my kids. So but I had to overcome all of that feminist background in order to do it. And yeah. that's why I say feminism is not pro women. It is not equipping women for what is in, for many women the most life changing event of their whole life, which is having children.
0: Yeah, and of course the New York Times every single day. There's at least two to three. Articles or op ed pieces denigrating not only motherhood, but they denigrating motherhood and the denigrating the family. So there's it's just a constant assault on our on us in the in our culture. But so I, wanted, we re-
1: I wanted to let me give you a, a PS on that. But there's a lot of books, uh, a lot of studies coming out now on how fathers are affected by birth. So I wanted to bring them in too, just so it's not just a motherhood issue. Um, that fathers also have a bonding experience. Do you know that when men become fathers, their oxytocin rises?
0: Yeah. Well, I found that out (laughs) in your book. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, (laughs) actually, I'm not sure if this one is in my... Yeah, actually, I think it is. um, Because this is the most recent one I read. Uh, There's an anthropologist who discovered that men's fathers' oxytocin rises even during pregnancy.
0: Wow. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, it might not be in there yet. (laughs) But when a mother and father live together his oxytocin rises during the pregnancy. And so he's being biochemically equipped. God is biochemically equipping men to be fathers, even during pregnancy. I guess nobody ever even thought to test a man's blood, you know, the chemicals in this blood during, pre- during his wife's pregnancy, but now they're doing that. And so it is amazing uh, how much fatherhood is also influenced by, by their biochemistry. So, you know people who denigrate motherhood have got to uh, open their frame and start realizing fatherhood is just as big a deal for many men that that like I said, God actually equips men biochemically Margaret Mead this is a common in, in sociology. Margaret Mead that oh motherhood is natural for women, but fatherhood is a cultural construction. It turns out that's not true, yeah, fatherhood is also biochemically grounded and so that's that's something that we need to sort of catch up with the science on that
0: yeah i like that i like that we're going to skip to so in in love thy body you in chapter four you it's called schizoid sex (laughs) and i love that title but um can you just talk just briefly about the dualism and quote unquote hookup culture
1: yeah you know you just have to read what young people say. I read articles in places like Rolling Stone magazine, and I have quotes from young people saying things like, you know, to to engage in the hookup culture, um, a young woman named Alicia who says, you have to turn everything off except your body. You make yourself emotionally invulnerable. what a great summary. She's recognizing that split. I have to have my mind completely separate from my body, and there was another quote I, I think it was also from Rolling Stone, where a young uh, a, a young student said, "The mistake people make is they think that there can be two dimensions to a relationship: one sexual and one emotional. And this is a direct quote, and they pretend like there are clean lines between them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you can just visualize it. okay, that's that same metaphor of two stories you know that there's a lower story where we engage we can engage with someone sexually and it's you know above the line is the emotional the connection young people are being stuck in this two-story division in the hookup culture and it's and it's it's destroying them i mean no no wonder it's causing so much uh, heartache and, and anguish <laughs> there was one psychiatrist who said she, she works at a university campus and she said the two most common medications given out in the campus clinic are birth control pills and antidepressants. And she yep. said, that that's not an accident.
0: <laughs> so in, in chapter five of love thy body, you get into homosexuality, you get into the idea of being born this way that, um, But how does, you you talk about this, how does same-sex behavior disparage the body?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. And um, you can tell me um, what you think of this. So even my homosexual friends agree that on the terms of biology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To embrace a same-sex identity, then, is to contradict that design.
0: Mm-hmm. It's to
1: say, why should my body inform my identity? Why should my moral choices be constrained in any way by my biological sex? So in, 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 in a sense, this is where we get back to Camille Paglia, who said, you know, why, why should my body have any say in what I do sexually? Because after all, the body is a product of mindless material forces. And we have to help people to see this as a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. Uh, One of the other people I quote in the book um, was a young woman who was a lesbian for several years and um, became a Christian. And I I like her quote, she said, to her own surprise, she began to feel a flickering of heterosexual desire. Uh, And today she's married and has two kids. But here's how she put it. She said, Direct quote: I came to I came to trust. That's how she put it. I came to, came to trust that God had made me female for a reason, and I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the Creator's design. Yeah. And I thought that what a great way of putting it. And when I speak to Christian audiences, I find that this is the hardest thing for them to to assimilate to get their minds around. They're so used to, you know, you know the common view, this common stereotype of Christians, that they're, is that they're negative, right? Is that this is wrong, it's against the Bible, it's a sin, don't do it, and there's something wrong with you. <laughs> and that's the message we seem to get from most places. And so I have to reiterate this again and again. No, no, how do we use positive language? I wanted to honor my body, by living in accord with the creator's design. Uh, we want to respect our biological sex. We want to live in congruence with who God has made us. We want to live in harmony with our body. These are all positive phrases that people, I find people have to kind of practice. <laughs> I, w- I spoke at CFDA, which is Christian Medical and Dental Association. And a Psychiatrist came up to me afterwards and said, so, you know, I have a client who's a woman who thinks she's a man, what do I do? And I said, <laughs> You know, I I use that language, you know, well, honor your body, respect who God made you, live in accord with who God made you to be. Yes, yes, but what do I say? And so I said it again, you know, I reiterated it, (laughs) respect your body, honor the biology God. After about four times, she finally said, oh, oh, (laughs) love thy body. (laughs) You know, it just takes a while to assimilate that positive view that the reason the reason behind the Christian epic is not negative, but positive. That as Christians, what we want to convey to people is a high view of the body. And in fact, in fact, here's, here's how it, it can sometimes get through to people. What we're facing is what the is what the early Christian church faced. Right, the early Christian church faced a culture, a Greco-Roman culture, that denigrated the body, though for very different reasons. Right, the early church faced Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, Manichaeism. Do you remember Augustine was a Manichaeist? Augustine,
0: yeah, he was into that.
1: But all of these isms treated this world as a realm of death, decay, and destruction and therefore bad. In fact, Gnosticism taught that there were several levels of gods and that it was a low level deity, the lowest god, an evil god.
0: The Demiurge. Yeah, like, yeah.
1: Right, right. Demiurge just was a way of saying a low level evil god.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Because
1: this world is evil, therefore, it must have been an evil God who created it. Um, and, and so Christianity was completely revolutionary when it came into this culture and said, no, it was not an evil God who created this world. It was the supreme deity who is a good God. And therefore, this world is intrinsically good. Though the... The ultimate scandal was the incarnation, the idea that that same good God, the supreme deity, had entered into the material world and taken on a physical body. Um, that, that was, you know, the, inter- the incarnation was the ultimate yeah. affirmation of the dignity of the human body. Yes. And then, of course, when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, he did escape the physical wo- the body as Gnosticism thought we should aspire to do. But what did he do then? He returned. He came back <laughs> in a physical body,
0: and he ate fish. Yes,
1: yeah. he ate fish to prove that it was physical. Um, to the ancient Greeks and Romans, this was not spiritual progress. Who would want to come back to the realm of the body? It was utter foolishness to the Greeks, as Paul puts yes. it in First Corinthians. Yep. And then at the end of time, what's going to happen? God's not going to scrap the material universes if you made a mistake the first time around you know let's do something better No, he's going to renew and restore this material world the new he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth with and
0: we're going to be we're going to have resurrected bodies
1: and we will be exactly exactly i was talking to a secular friend about this and i said remember even the apostles creed says resurrection of the body and she said oh my goodness all the way back then you're right. They realize that Christianity implies a high view of the body because the body itself will be resurrected. Yeah. So I, what I help hope to help people to realize is that this is an incredibly high view of the material world. There's nothing like it in any other religion or philosophy, and we should be absolutely excited about communicating it to people.
0: I wanted to ask you about um, gay marriage, because Oh, yeah. there's this whole concept of you know what's what is it there's no harm it's innocuous it doesn't really harm anyone that gays can get yeah. married but actually it do- it harms marriage it harms there's so much harm done there it, which it leads to the breakdown of the family The bre- which leads to mental illness depression suicide homelessness like all of the above because and people don't understand that. They don't understand that gay marriage is not just this, some sort of innocuous thing.
1: Yeah, it would have been nice to get to that. Maybe we can have another
0: time. Yeah.
1: What I've done, you know, um, in my lectures, I've had a chance. I mean, the book's been out for three years. So my lectures are now, you know, even clearer than the book. I wish I could go back and rewrite the book. But what I do in my lecture is I really pull out and simplify the political uh, implications um and let's see if i can do it without my notes <laughs> um in each one of these cases the state itself is putting itself on the side of the net the denigration of the body so abortion you know the state itself is essentially saying you're not a person you know your body means nothing we will only give you legal protection when you are a person defined in terms of mental abilities so it's basically de- denigrate that's a legal legally it is said being a human is no longer enough for human rights. You know, If it acknowledges that you're human, but says you still have no rights, you know, that you could still be killed for any reason or no reason, you can be you know, experimented on, you can be pit through for sellable body parts like Planned Parenthood has done and then tossed out with the other medical waste. And that's how the medical journals talk about it, medical waste. The body is human, but now it's just medical waste. So the, the state has itself put itself on the side of saying um, the body, the, being human, physical, physically, materially, genetically human, does not give you any rights. Um, marriage, you know, oh, here's how, well, back up, here's how I put it. Um, a free society is only possible if you have some rights that are pre-political, right, that the, the state doesn't create them. Because right. if the state creates them, it can take them away. So the right to life used to be thought as a pre-political right. It's it's something you had just because you were a member of the human race. You didn't have that just the, because the state gave it to you. Well, Declaration of Independence, you're endowed by the creator with inalienable rights. Um, but now, essentially, what Roe v. Wade did was say, no, you, only have, you don't have rights for being human, but only if the state decides you're a person. So it, it greatly expanded the power of the state. Uh, Marriage. Marriage is a pre-political right. (laughs) You know, humans naturally come together and and, and form families. Um, The state doesn't create marriage. It can regulate it to some degree, like saying you have to be a certain age or whatever. The state doesn't create marriage. But what the the Supreme Court did in Obergefell um, was to say, well, biology doesn't matter. What matters is an emotional connection to this other person. So again, see, that's the upper story. It's said like the biology, the biological connection between males and females is not going to have any legal recognition. We will only recognize this a particular kind of emotional connection. But the trouble is, of course, we have lots of emotional connections. So who decides which ones qualify as marriage? Well, the state. So again, it was a huge power grab by the state. Yeah. Parenthood. By the way, do you, uh, do you realize, you know, parenthood, of course, Used to be thought to be a pre-political right is based on biology. The woman who gives birth is a mother, and the the um the state recognized the uh her legal husband as the biological parent. This is called the presumption of parenthood. Um, but same sex couples, oh, they could adopt, but they didn't want to do that because number one, it's long and expensive. But number two, they said they wanted to be treated exactly like opposite sex couples, anything less than that was discrimination. And the Supreme Court agreed in 2017. There's a Supreme Court decision, Pavan, I think it's called, uh, that said, as long as you're legally married, uh, even if you're not genetically related to the child, you are the legal parent. And so now, essentially, you are the child's legal parent, not by anything that's pre-political, not by biology, but whether the state recognizes you. So it's a power grab of the state. And the same thing with transgenderism. You know, the only way the state could treat a trans woman, meaning biologically male, a biological male, the same as a biological woman, was to say biology is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. And so once again, you know, the state has decided I'm going to I will determine. You know, biology is irrelevant, and the state will determine whether you're a man or a woman. So in every case, it was a huge power grab by the state. In yeah. each case, it was a dim- dismissal of biology. And in the process, giving far more power to the state, it's, you know, like with parenthood, you are essentially your child's parent now by permission of the state. You know, it's it, you know, it has these logical implications take some time to work themselves out, but that's where that's the logic. And I know. A sci- uh, a society does eventually tend to work out the logic yeah. of its of its commitment, you know, its philosophical commitments.
0: It's a scary time and um I hope Christ returns pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. But guys, again, the book is Love Thy Body answering hard questions about life and sexuality. Please get it and uh read it. It's a wonderful read. And Professor Nancy Piercy, thank you for being on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed your book and enjoyed your videos, so it's great to finally meet you.
0: Great to meet you too. Thank you guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. God invites us to cultivate thankful hearts, By turning our eyes toward Him in good times and bad. To listen to more Abide Christian Meditations, just go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Abide Christian Meditation. You can also download the Abide app for more biblical meditations at abide.com.